Neil Ferguson is a Scottish historian. He's an author. He has taught at Harvard. Now he's teaching at Stanford. And recently he was interviewed uh, by Jonah Goldberg on his podcast. And they spent the first few minutes of the conversation talking about a Latin phrase that Neil Ferguson had used for his uh, sound check. They were testing the mics before the podcast began. And they asked Neil Ferguson, say something into the mic. And here is what he said into the mic the Latin phrase, conceptio culpa, nasi pena, labor vita, necesse mori. I'm sure you got that and understand. Uh, conceptio culpa, nasi pena, labor vita, necesse mori. It translates this way. Conception is sin, birth is pain, life is toil, and death is inevitable. Conception is sin, birth is pain, life is toil, and death is inevitable. It's a real warm-hearted sentiment. Some of you are looking for something to put on this year's Christmas card. Here's something that might work really well. Now, Ferguson said that he read that inscription for the first time in a painting that's called The Triumph of Death. In 1655, there was a a terrible plague that struck the city of Naples, and Salvatore Rosa, the painter, lived in Naples at the time, and the plague killed his son, his brother, his wife, and five of their children. So he painted a picture of his sorrow. It's called The Triumph of Death, and in this painting, this angel provides this inscription. Uh, Conception is sin, birth is pain, life is toil, Death is inevitable. Neil Ferguson says he likes that. It's his motto because it it, it, uh, summarizes so much of the human condition. It's his life philosophy. It's kind of bleak, isn't it? And yet, sometimes we get on a loop where that's where we think. Uh, Last week, the podcast, The World and Everything in It, uh, told a story about a man. His name is Bill Haley, and he bought property in rural Virginia. He owned some property, and he bought 11 acres next to his home. And he was walking through the property, uh, and he came through a set of woods, and he walked through the woods, and he saw in the woods a set of stones sitting in the ground just like this. And he realized that all the rumors that he had heard were true, that there was indeed a cemetery in this, on this property. He did some investigation and found out it was a slave cemetery. All of the stones, or a vast majority of the stones, were blank because at the time that the slaves had been buried, it was against the law for them to learn to read or write, so they had no capacity to write names on these stones. They were just put in the ground up, upright. The slaves were always buried at night because... You couldn't be buried, uh, you couldn't miss work for a funeral. So after the day's work was done, the slaves would go and bury their loved ones that had died. Uh, Haley said that the most um, poignant observation he made, or most poignant thing he found in the cemeteries, that cemetery was the very short graves, the graves of children. So think about this. He found the final resting place for children born into slavery, who knew nothing else but slavery, who were buried at night in graves with no names. Conception is sin, birth is pain, life is toil. Wouldn't it have been easier for those children if they had never been born? 
while we were puzzling over that Latin inscription, you, you, we could be a little bit more contemporary. You have all heard, no doubt, about the apparent suicide of Jeffrey Epstein, and you know the crimes of which he was committed. He's dead. The trial's over. Will the, the women and girls that he abused, will there be any justice for any of those victims? And what about his co-conspirators which, uh, or his accomplices? Some of them are powerful and influential men. Will they ever see justice? Life is toil. I hope you saw the warnings recently that have been given about the Social Security Administration, not the Social Security Administration itself, but about the cons that people are pulling in the name of the Social Security Administration. There's a woman by the name of Susan. Um, She lives in California. One day she received a phone call from someone who sounded or claimed to be from the Social Security Administration, and he said to her, Ma'am, your uh, name and Social Security number were found at a drug house in Texas. And all of your assets are going to be uh, 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 confiscated, seized by the Drug Enforcement Agency. You're about to be indicted as a co-conspirator in this crime. And the only way that you can protect your assets is to send them to the Social Security Administration. We will help you. We will protect you. We'll get your money back. We'll keep it for you. But if you want it to be safe, you should send it to us. She says she feels really foolish about it. In fact, she doesn't want to talk about it. By her, she won't give her last name when she's interviewed, but she fell for it, and every cent of her savings, she had $14,000 she transferred to this account that was supposed to be the Social Security Administration keeping her money safe. So how does that happen? This hard-working senior citizen, a, a conscientious member of society who thought it was bad that her name was associated with a drug ring, was taken in by these wicked con men, they'll never be persecuted and she'll never recover financially. Life is toil. Now if you find yourself thinking in a loop about those stories, where where you focus on those events and things like them, have I got a book for you to read. It's not an easy read. It's not very long. It will take you about 15 minutes, but it's, it's not easy. It's at least 2,300 years old. It may be as old as 3,000 years. It's mysterious. It's dark, poetic, but it might be exactly what you need right now. If not now, you will need it sometime in your life. If you only like Hallmark movies, um, movies where everything ends with joy and happiness for really attractive, well-off people, we need Hallmark movies every now and then. Everyone needs a Hallmark movie every now and then. Okay? But if you only like Hallmark movies, this is not going to be an easy few months for you at church. But if you've ever had your heart broken, or if you are struggling right now because life seems to be broken, listen up for a little bit. Let's gather around. You and I need to read the book of Ecclesiastes together. In fact, if you have your Bibles, would you take them and turn with me to the book of Ecclesiastes? You're going to get used to finding this book in the next few months. Ecclesiastes is uh, after the book of Psalms. Psalms is the biggest book in the Bible. So if you open your Bible on the left side of it and find Psalms, you can turn to the right a little bit. There'll be Proverbs and then a little book of Ecclesiastes. If you open to Isaiah or Jeremiah, turn left because Ecclesiastes is tucked right in there. 
Uh, and today what we're going to do is we're going to begin reading and learning from this book. Now our normal practice when we start new books of the Bible, and this is our practice, we, we move systematically through books of the Bible. I don't know if you notice this, but we alternate between the Old and New Testament. That's what we, one of the things that we do. And we also move back and forth between different sections of the Bible. You may have noticed that too. Now, when we begin a book, I usually dedicate a Sunday to introducing the book to you. I want you to, to orient it to you. Um, this is going to be more of a lecture than a sermon. It's going to be more information than application. I want to do this this morning with you because I want to help you become a better reader of the Bible. I want you to be more familiar with the Bible as a whole. Uh, part of the orientation of a book involves getting a handle on the basic facts of a book. Who wrote it? When did they write it? Who did they write it for? What's the purpose of this book? What's the structure of the text? When you look for those things as you read a book, you, you notice things that you might not have noticed uh, before. I want you to think with me for just a minute about picking up a book at a bookstore or scrolling through Netflix to, to pick a movie to watch. When, when you pick up a book, book publishers today, they, they don't publish books uh, with blank covers. The cover has all kinds of information for you. In fact, it's supposed to attract you to reading the book. There's supposed to be some picture that's just um, a wonderful picture that will draw you in. And the author's name, if the author's name is famous and well-known, the author's name will be big. If the author is not well-known, their name will be small, but somebody who endorsed it will be really big, their name. Um, there'll be on the back maybe a little a biographical information about the author. There'll be a, a summary of the book, uh, uh, questions that it raises. You might, if, if you're looking at it for the first time, uh, look at the table of contents. Or if you're thinking about a movie, you'll look at the reviews. What have people said about this? Do I want to invest my time in reading this book or in watching this film? If, if Ecclesiastes were published on its own as a book, here are some things that might be on the cover. I want to talk to you about them because I want you to be interested in and know what to expect over the next uh, few months. There's four things that I want to talk to you about this morning. First, we're going to talk about the author and the setting and the recipients. So some of those basic background information of the book of Ecclesiastes. And then second, we're going to talk about Ecclesiastes as wisdom literature. Ecclesiastes is wisdom literature in the Bible. What does that mean when we're talking about wisdom literature? And some of you already are nervous because you don't like the word literature. I understand it'll be okay. Then we're going to talk about the theme of Ecclesiastes. I want to talk about three main lessons from the book of Ecclesiastes. And then finally, we're going to talk about how, uh, for just a second, how Ecclesiastes looks forward to the rest of the Bible. So um, you can follow along with the notes page in the Bible. You'll see there's a couple pages devoted to Ecclesiastes. This is wonderful. Uh, we... Um, we try to, this is Celia's idea a couple of, uh, years ago, and it was a very fine one. All of the sermon series, uh, all the notes pages for each series are a different color. I don't know if you've noticed that. Um, we were left with yellow for Ecclesiastes. It's totally deceptive. It should be gray. should be very dark. This is bright, happy. No, no, no. This should be like the color of vomit. So, but it's not. It's not yellow. So... Anyway, there's the notes page, and then there's this chart that I made of Ecclesiastes for you. Ecclesiastes is about the mysteries of life, that's true, and, and figuring out how Ecclesiastes breaks apart uh, is, is 
Mysterious too. I, I adapted that from a scholar named Sidney Gradonis who took his from a scholar named Addison Wright. It's, it's hard. Ecclesiastes is a tough book. This is not easy. But there's a chart. You can do with it what you want. Dartboard, lamination, I don't care. Whatever will work for you best. Well, background information. Here we go. Who wrote the book of Ecclesiastes? So the author, recipient, setting, that's where we're going to start. We always look at the first few sentences of a book of the Bible because that's where the author is usually mentioned. And if you look at Ecclesiastes 1.1, the text says, the words of the teacher, your translation might say preacher. I'll tell you why I think teacher is better than preacher in a few minutes. The words of the teacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem. For most of histories, uh, both Christians and Jews have believed that the author of the book of Ecclesiastes is David's, King David's son, Solomon, King David's son and successor, Solomon. Solomon's reign began sometime around 950 B.C. His kingdom was famous in the region for its wealth and its, his wisdom, its power and influence. Now, Ecclesiastes never uses Solomon's name, but uh, still, uh, there are a lot of reasons to identify Ecclesiastes with Solomon himself. Um, one of them has to do with the parallels between Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. I meant to put this on your note sheet, but I didn't. I'm going to read Proverbs 1.1. You look at Ecclesiastes 1.1, and I'm going to read Proverbs 1.1. So look at Ecclesiastes 1.1. I'll read Proverbs 1.1, and think, notice how they're the same. Here's Proverbs 1.1. The Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel. See the parallels? The words of the teacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem. So it seems like Proverbs and Ecclesiastes are meant to go together in that way. Look at how the author of Ecclesiastes describes himself in uh, Ecclesiastes 1 verse... Oh, I'm still in Proverbs. That won't do me any good. 12. Ecclesiastes 1.12. Look how he describes himself. I, the teacher, was king over Israel in Jerusalem. I applied my mind to study and to explore by wisdom all that is done under the heavens, what a heavy burden God has laid on mankind. I really sought to understand. That describes Solomon. I'm not sure how much you know about Solomon, but one of the first things he did as king was ask God to give him wisdom and 1 Kings 4, which I did write down that paragraph, describes Solomon in his wisdom. Look at 1 Kings 4.29. God gave Solomon wisdom and very great insight and a breadth of understanding as measureless as the sand on the seashore. Solomon's wisdom was greater than the wisdom of all the people of the east and greater than all the wisdom of Egypt. He was wiser than anyone else, including Ethan the Ezraite. Now, you should have when I said that gasped. <gasps> Even Ethan the Ezraite? Yes, even Ethan the Ezraite. <gasps> wow. Wiser than Heman, Kelkol, and Darda, the sons of Mahal, and his fame spread to all the surrounding nations. He spoke 3,000 proverbs, and his songs numbered 1,005. He spoke about plant life from the cedar of Lebanon, the biggest tree, to the hyssop that grows out of walls, the smallest plant. He also spoke about animals and birds and reptiles and fish. From all nations, people came to listen to Solomon's wisdom, sent by all the kings of the world who had heard of his wisdom. The author of Ecclesiastes was a great man like Solomon was. Uh, look at chapter 1, verse uh, 16. 
I said to myself, look, I have increased in wisdom more than anyone who has ruled over Jerusalem before me. I have experienced much of wisdom and knowledge. Sounds like Solomon. Chapter 2, verse 4. I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself and planted vineyards. I made gardens and parks and planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made reservoirs to water groves of flourishing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had other slaves who were born in my house. I also owned more herds and flocks than anyone in Jerusalem before me. I amassed silver and gold for myself and the treasure of kings and provinces. I acquired male and female singers and a harem as well, the delights of a man's heart. I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me. That sounds like Solomon. This this book also speaks to the brokenness that could characterize Solomon. Do you remember Solomon's life story? So Solomon, in time, rejected the requirements of the king of Israel that God had given. He rejected those requirements about amassing wives and a mighty army and uh, wealth. It was his wives in particular that turned his heart and he ended his life in this grand defection from God. Now that should give you pause. How is it that a man who was so gifted in mind could turn on God and make so many foolish mistakes? How, How can that be? Well, one of the lessons of Solomon's life is that it takes more than smarts to follow God faithfully. It takes more than just wisdom to follow God faithfully. Ecclesiastes was written by someone who had tasted all of the flavors of life. All of them. (laughs) My dear grandmother once walked into a Baskin Robbins and said, "Uh, what flavors do you have? They said, ma'am, we have 31 flavors. And she said, oh, well, I'll take vanilla. That's how she rolled. how she rolled. Solomon had tasted all of the flavors of life. And he has the wisdom to describe them all. He can counsel you on how they should taste and how they will affect you. So Solomon's a good candidate. Tradition says so. There's much in this book that would seem to indicate that it would be Solomon. I should be honest, though, and tell you this morning that there are reasons to believe that Solomon did not write Ecclesiastes. In fact, most Bible scholars, both conservatives and less conservatives, no longer believe that Solomon wrote this book. Your study notes in your Bible might say that Solomon is not the author of this book. Uh, Even Martin Luther had doubts about it. He was one of the first to voice them. And one of the reasons that people have doubts about whether or not Solomon wrote this book is Uh, because of the vocabulary in the book. There are people who know Hebrew really well. The the church needs people who know Hebrew really well. There are people who know Hebrew so well that they read the Hebrew and Ecclesiastes and they say, this just doesn't sound the same as the Hebrew that was prevalent in Solomon's day. Uh, You know what this is like. I could show you something by Shakespeare or show you something by Jane Austen and you would know... Uh, roughly kind of where it fits or that it wasn't contemporary. Your knowledge of English is good enough to recognize those differences. There are people who know Hebrew that well and they just say, this just doesn't, there's words in here that just don't seem to belong. If, if somebody found a new Shakespeare sonnet uh, and claimed it was by William Shakespeare and it had reference to answering the telephone, you know something is wrong. There's a couple words in this book that just don't seem to fit. And then they they point to things inside the book, too, that that give questions. 
I already read the boast in verse 16, uh, chapter uh, sorry, yeah, verse 16 of chapter 1. I said to myself, look, I have increased more than anyone who has ruled in Jerusalem before me. I have experienced much of wisdom and knowledge. And you read that and you want to say, okay, Solomon, you're like king number three. It's not much of a boast. I'm wiser than any king who's ruled in Jerusalem. Okay, you're the third king, man. Okay? My, my sister played soccer in college. She was a member of the inaugural soccer, women's soccer team at her school. She's a good athlete, but she was there for the first season. You know how many records she set? All of them. All of them. And, and you say, well, I mean, congratulations, but come on. So Solomon, this is not much of a boast if it's, if it's you. Or um, look at chapter 5, verse 8. Okay, chapter 5, verse 8. Look what this says in Ecclesiastes. He says, the author of Ecclesiastes says, If you see the poor oppressed in a district and justice and rights denied, do not be surprised at such things, for one official is eyed by a higher one, and over them both are others higher still. This is a verse where he's complaining about injustice in the world. And what happens? Well, you've got a, a, a district court judge who's corrupt, and then you have a, a state judge who's corrupt, and then you have a federal judge who's corrupt. Well, no wonder, no wonder, he says, this is why the poor are oppressed. And, and you want to say, okay, Solomon, if you're king, this shouldn't be true. You should fix this. Don't complain about this. You have the authority to do something about this. Why are you lamenting? You're the king. You have power. Why are you lamenting? Oh, there's so much injustice. If Solomon wrote this. Um, at, the, at the end of the book, the author slips into the third person and he starts talking about the teacher and evaluating the teacher. Uh, maybe that part wasn't written by Solomon. There are still reasons to believe that Solomon wrote this book. But if he didn't, again, the text never uses his name. It never uses his name. It seems that the author, whoever that man or woman may be, put these words in Solomon's mouth or a king like Solomon. As if this were a monologue that Solomon could have delivered. He could have said those things. Why did he pick Solomon as his spokesman? Again, because Solomon lived the sort of life that makes these words make sense. He also, Solomon, connects this book to David. These words that are so often soaked in despair are in the same stream of all those wonderful psalms that we have been reading. You should listen to them. And as Christian readers, these words, these words of a son of David, also connect very subtly to another son of David, the Lord Jesus himself. We're going to come back to that. Now, if we're not certain who the author is, and I don't think very much I'll refer to him as Solomon, maybe I will, we're not sure who, who the author is, it's going to be difficult to describe who the recipients were and the setting. If Solomon wrote it, it came from about 950 BC and he wrote it to uh, probably with Proverbs like the young men in his court that he was training to have leadership in Israel. Um, If it was not written by Solomon, the next second best guess is that it was written for the nation of Israel at the end um, when they had been taken off into exile and the nation had fallen apart. And, and this is a book to help people whose lives have fallen apart uh, follow God faithfully. 
Regardless, this is a rich book written from the vantage point of a long view of life, written by a person who knows what matters and what doesn't. Now, we're going to talk about wisdom literature next, uh, but before we do, we should, we should think about how the author addresses himself. He calls himself the teacher. The teacher. Uh, that is the translation of a Hebrew word. The Hebrew word is the word kohelet. I wrote that down in your note sheet, I think, kohelet with a Q. You don't have to get very deep into books about Ecclesiastes where they use that term all the time, kohelet. Kohelet is a Hebrew word that refers to somebody who calls an assembly together. Think of it like an old school teacher ringing the school bell. Dong, 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 dong. Come to class. It's time to come and learn. That's a kohelet. It's someone who calls an assembly. Um, when, it, when it gets over into Greek, that idea of an assembly is how it got its, its name, Ecclesiastes. Because Ecclesiastes means a called together assembly. In, in, in the New Testament, the word ecclesia um, is most often translated church. So you see how some people get, oh, Ecclesiastes, ecclesia, church, preacher. But Ecclesiastes is not a sermon. Don't think of it as a sermon. It's, it's a lecture. It's more like a TED Talk than a sermon. It's a lecture about the nature of life. So I think it's best to call him teacher. We'll probably talk about the teacher a lot. Now, that leads me to my second topic here. We're going to talk about uh, Ecclesiastes as wisdom literature. This book is wisdom literature. There are four books in the Old Testament that we identify as, classify as wisdom literature. Proverbs, Song of Songs, Ecclesiastes, and Job, and some of the Psalms too. It's an unusual collection of books, these books. Um, they don't really advance the story of the Bible. There's nothing in them that's focused on the grand redemptive story of God. There's no covenants formed in those books. They don't speak about sacrifices or the law of Moses. They don't speak to specific historical events like the prophets. There's no stories here like in Genesis or in Joshua. Uh, it's not, they're not stories. They're history. It's not law. It's not prophets. It's wisdom literature. Uh, wisdom for living life in God's world across time and almost across cultures these books apply. Every culture has wisdom literature. We have wisdom literature in our culture. Think about Aesop's fables. Remember Aesop's fables, reading those as a kid? Or um, actually, Benjamin Franklin was our, one of our great collectors of wisdom literature. Early to bed, early to rise, makes a man healthy, wealthy, and wise. Fish and house guests both smell after three days. Keep your eyes wide open before marriage, half shut after marriage. It's wisdom from Ben Franklin. The focus of wisdom literature in the Bible is on skillful living. And in the ancient world, it was kings who had the resources to collect and develop communities devoted to studying wisdom. So when we think of kings, we think of palaces and crowns. In the ancient world, when they would think of kings, they would think of palaces too. But they would think of wisdom literature, collecting these stories, these myths, these fables, these parables. Um, we're, we're most familiar with Proverbs as, as wisdom literature. Ecclesiastes actually has its own set of Proverbs. Chapter 10 is mostly Proverbs of Ecclesiastes. Now, there's a key difference that we should talk about between Proverbs and Song of Songs on, one hand, on the one hand and Ecclesiastes and Job on the other. 
So Proverbs and Song of Songs and Ecclesiastes and Job are different. Uh, Proverbs and Song of Songs focus on living wisely in the world as God made it to be. They're generally more positive. Ecclesiastes and Job describe the world as it is broken by our sin. So Proverbs and Songs of Songs are about the rightness of the world and how, how life most often works uh, when people are rightly oriented to God. And Ecclesiastes and Job tell us about the wrongness of the world. What has happened to the world, the universe, since we human beings rebelled against God, the Creator? You, you could say Proverbs is about the rules and Ecclesiastes is about the exceptions. When you learn to spell, your teachers taught you rules, right? I before E. I before E. That works really well for remembering how to spell words like believe and grieve. I before E. But then there's the word neither and neighbor and receive. The E comes first. So then you have to master the rule, I before E, Except after C and sometimes Y and in words that sound like A, such as neighbor and way. That's terrible. It's terrible. So there's rules and there's exceptions. Does your life right now feel more like it's going according to the rules or does your life right now feel like it's going more according to the exceptions? If you work hard and make good choices, you'll be in general satisfied. But there are no guarantees. So does your life feel more like the rules right now or the exceptions? Wisdom literature often makes a close connection to the book of Genesis. So Proverbs and Song of Songs picks up in Genesis 2 when God says the world is very good and unfold all of the implications of the very good world that God made. And Ecclesiastes and, so, uh, and, and Job pick up in Genesis 3 where Adam and Eve ate the forbidden fruit and unfold what life is like now. This might help as an illustration. It's not perfect, but it might help. Um, This week, my wife was reminiscing with uh, Claire about the story of the Chilean miners. Remember that story? So on August 5th, 2010, there was a cave-in at the San Jose Copper Mine in northern Chile. And uh, 33 men were trapped 2,300 feet below the surface, three miles from the entrance to the mine. It took 17 days for those in the service to make contact with those 33 men. And then... Three drilling teams, every governmental agency in Chile, NASA, and a dozen international companies spent 42 days trying to get the men out. So for 69 days, they were trapped in the mine, and after that they were rescued. One billion people on the planet watched on television as those men were rescued from the mine. How do you live in a mine when you don't know if and when help is coming. They knew about the world that was outside of the mine, but they had been cut off from that world. And in the world they were living, it was there were no natural light sources. It was 90 degrees most of the time. Food was limited. What's most important in the mine? How do you decide what's most important in the mine? You want to live for as long as possible, but you don't have the resources to live for very long 
And, and then what role, once you do make contact with the world outside, what role do you think the messages from the outside world would play in your life? It's not a perfect analogy. It's not a perfect analogy, but Ecclesiastes, building on Genesis 3, describes our world somewhat like that. We started out as human beings in another world. God made us in another world, Eden. And the highlight of every day of life in that world was the daily visit of God himself in the cool of the evening. In that world, there was no death. There was no sorrow, no sickness, no loss, no suffering, no war, no violence, no need. But because Adam and Eve, our parents, wanted to set their own rules, they wanted to live for themselves, Adam and Eve broke God's rules and they were banished from the garden, sent out from that world. Can you imagine what life was like for them? They would have memories of what that world was like. They knew what it was like to live in Eden. Hmm. That, that memory faded from human history pretty quickly. Here we are. We're alienated from the world that God made for us to live in. How do we survive? What do we value? How do we live? Frankly, we live without very much wisdom. Ecclesiastes is here to tell us what life under the sun is like. That's a phrase, under the sun, that Ecclesiastes is going to use over and over again. Life under the sun. God is above the sun. Here we are under the sun in human life in a different world than the one that God created. One we have broken by our sin and that brokenness reaches into every corner, into every activity, every human heart. What do we do? How do we live under the sun? So we say, help us, Ecclesiastes. Bring us a message from above the sun to help us live here under the sun. So that's Ecclesiastes as wisdom literature. Now, let's talk about three themes. Three themes from Ecclesiastes. These are messages that are going to rise up over and over and over again. Number one, life is often a mystery. Life is often a mystery. One of the key words in the book of Ecclesiastes is the word translated meaningless meaningless. I'm not sure that that's the best translation. Mine says in verse 2 of chapter 1, meaningless, meaningless. It's a good try. Your translation might say vanity, vanity, or uh, some variation of the word futile. Futility of futilities, or futile of, it's futile. This word in Hebrew shows up 40 times in Ecclesiastes. It literally means vapor or breath. It's the Hebrew word hevel. From, uh, it's the name of the, the, the character in Genesis uh, 3, the man Abel. Abel, his life was so short. We know so, so little about him. And his, his name is literally breath, vapor. David Gibson wrote a fine book on Ecclesiastes. I'll quote him a lot probably. He says this word hevel is like the smoke that rises from a candle. So you blow out the candle... And there's a smoke that rises from the wick. Some of you snuff it out as fast as you can. I'm not sure why you do that. But think about that smoke. It doesn't last very long. And, and you can't hold it. You can't grab onto it. You can't contain it. It doesn't have any real sort of substance to it. It's, it's just a, a vapor. And you, you can explain, I suppose, by the currents of the, the room, if, if you could evaluate the currents, why it moves the way it does. But basically, it's just a, kind of a mystery, isn't it? Why it's moving the way it is. That's life. 
It's, it's frustrating. It's a mystery often. You know that the Old Testament was translated from the Hebrew into the Greek, and the, the apostles quoted from that Greek translation of the Old Testament a lot. In Romans 8.20, Paul uses that same word, hebel, or, well, from Greek, Hebrew to Greek. He, he quotes to describe creation. Look what he says in Romans 8.20. For the creation was subjected to frustration. There it is. Meaninglessness, vanity, futility, vaporousness. The creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom of the children of God. Frustration. Life is frustrating. That's the word. Life cannot be neatly packaged. I wish it could be. Are there any perfectionists in the room? You want your life to be photoshopped? You want your reality to match as good as you make your life look on Instagram? But life is repetitive. It's plodding. It's hard. You need to adjust to this reality. You're not going to be able to fix everything. Not all of your dreams are going to come true. And there will be moments when things crash around you and God will seem mysteriously absent. People, good people get sick and they die. They die young. Divorce happens from that couple that you never thought would get divorced. You lose your job. Your investments get stolen. Things don't always make sense. Ecclesiastes is not here to tell you how to smooth out your life so it's nice and easy. Ecclesiastes is here to tell you how to trust God when life hits you really hard. Because life is often a mystery. Now second here, good news, death is inevitable. Death is inevitable. That's part of the Latin quotation I gave you before I understand that. But it's a major theme of Ecclesiastes. You're going to die It says it over and over and over again, Ecclesiastes. Look at Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 2. I read this passage at funerals frequently. Ecclesiastes 7, verse 2. Look what it says. It is better to go to a house of mourning than to go to a house of feasting. Better you be at the funeral home than at Olive Garden. Why? I know some of you are thinking to yourself, have you ever eaten at Olive Garden? No, 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 no. Here we go. It's fine food. Verse 2, it's better to go to a house of mourning than to go to a house of feasting. Why? Because death is the destiny of everyone. The living should take this to heart. You're going to die. Every single one of you is going to die. If you're wise, you'll remember that. You'll live with that in view. Human beings try all kinds of ways to escape or overcome or ignore this reality. And Ecclesiastes spends a lot of time dismantling all the ways that we try to deny that we're going to die. But you can't do it. You're going to die and you're going to be forgotten very soon. That should change you. It should change your priorities. It should change your goals. Zach Eswine writes about a conversation he had with his cousin. His cousin was a combat soldier in the United States Army. And after his second tour of duty in Iraq, he returned and he went to the mall. And he spent about five minutes in the mall before he had to leave. Zach Eswine said, well, what happened? 
And his cousin started talking to him about all the stuff that was on sale at the mall. Heaps and heaps and heaps of stuff for sale at the mall. And he said, it just made me so angry. He said to his cousin, after you've seen what the world is really like, it is hard to have patience with a mall. Maybe you need to read Ecclesiastes because you're too comfortable at the mall. You're going to die You may be healthy and strong now. You should use that strength wisely because it's not going to last. The teacher wants you to remember your creator now while you're young and healthy and strong because soon you're going to be old and frail and weak and you're not going to be able to do hard things that are going to last for eternity uh, when you're old and frail and weak. So do something now while you're young and strong. Do something now that matters while you're young and strong and healthy. So live with that end in view. Ecclesiastes is going to tell us that over and over and over again. Now here's a third theme in Ecclesiastes. Receive God's good gifts as they come. Receive God's good gifts as they come. There's this sentence that the teacher repeats over and over again. We're going to see it repeatedly. Uh, Look at chapter 2, verse 24. I think this is the first time it appears, and uh, it's going to show up again and again. Chapter 2, verse 24. A person can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in their own toil. This too, I see, is from the hand of God. For without him, who can eat or find enjoyment? Eat and drink and find satisfaction in your work. This is a gift from God. This is the great wisdom of Ecclesiastes. Put sorrow and mystery in its place. Recognize that the world is broken and you can't fix everything. And, and when, you, when you realize that you can't fix everything, you will be able to receive the blessings and joys that life does bring. Some of them are very small. They're as small as breakfast eating and drinking. Some of you are so fixated on wishing for what is not true that you have no room in your life to enjoy the blessings that you have now, like eating and drinking and enjoying the fruit of a job well done, like a well-mowed lawn. Do you do that when when you're done with the lawn? You turn your lawn more often, there's that silence. You look out on the grass, wow, neat rows. Look at that so good you're going to have to mow it again next week and the week after that and and the week after that and when you don't have to mow anymore you'll have to rake and when you don't have to rake anymore you'll have to shovel and when you don't have to shovel anymore you'll have to mulch and then when you don't have to mulch anymore you'll have to mow but look right now just look right now at that well mowed lawn or that pile of well folded laundry isn't it beautiful I mean, you started with a pile that was gross and and you washed it and you dried it and now it smells good and it's in this beautiful, neat pile. Isn't that a good gift from God? Did you eat breakfast today? For the last several years, my go-to breakfast, I ate an English muffin with crunchy peanut butter and jelly on it. When you toast the English muffin just right, doesn't happen all the time. But when you toast it just right, it's, it's still crunchy on the outside and a little soft on the inside so that when you bite into it, 
you can feel and hear that crunch, 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 as, as you bite, like stepping on a fall leaf, that crunch that comes when you bite in, and the peanut butter hits your mouth. And it's creamy and a little salty, and every now and then the, one of those chunks of peanut butter will roll across your tongue. And just as you're settling into that salty creaminess, the jelly hits your tongue. Where does jelly come from? Grapes. It's a food from heaven. And it's so sweet. And it matches that salty. The, 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 the English muffin's warm and the peanut butter, it's, it's a little of a warm taste, especially if you spread it soon enough, it's a little gooey. And that jelly is cool to your tongue and it moves around your mouth. You can feel the crunch and the peanut butter and the jelly. And then after you swallow, you take a drink of orange juice and the, that tangy juice moves around your mouth. You can feel the pulp as it washes it all down. That is a gift from heaven. Maybe because you're trying to fix too much of life and you're not satisfied that life isn't perfect, you don't eat breakfast very well. Uh, Eat, drink, receive from God the simple gifts that he brings. It's one of the things that Ecclesiastes is going to talk about. Let's, let's learn more from that, about that from Ecclesiastes, shall we? Now I know some of you have to go make your English muffin, but I have one more topic to cover. All right, just one more. Let's talk about looking forward to the rest of the New Testament. So we're uh, not going to spend a lot of time on this this morning, but how does Ecclesiastes fit in the rest of the Bible? We're Christian people. Jesus said that himself said that he is the subject of the scriptures. So how does Ecclesiastes point us forward to Jesus? Some people find Ecclesiastes very frustrating because it, it seems to contradict the New Testament. The New Testament says resurrection, life, right? So uh, Jesus is alive. It changes everything. Jesus, this is our great hope, the resurrection. And Ecclesiastes comes along and says, you're going to die, Right? Life, you're going to die. So how do, these, how do these fit together? My goal is to show you how Ecclesiastes connects to Jesus, and I want to do it in more than just ways by saying, well, here's the problem in Ecclesiastes, and Jesus is always the answer. I want to do it more than that. Uh, he is always the answer, that's true. But I want to show you that connection more than just that way. Sometimes, actually, Jesus sounds like Ecclesiastes. He himself is a wisdom teacher. He said, don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal. That sounds very much like Ecclesiastes. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is there, your heart will be also. That's Ecclesiastes. We have to make connections as time goes by. Let me just finish with one that will also help us think about the Lord's Supper. Follow me here. So in Ecclesiastes, what's the the great sign of God's goodness? Eat and drink. Eat and drink and receive from God those simple good gifts. He says it over and over again. A person can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in his work. Do you know when Jesus comes in the Gospels, what he spends an awful lot of time doing? Eating. Do you know how much time Jesus spends in the Gospel of Luke, in particular, eating? His best stories are told at feasts. He tells stories about feasts. He tells stories on the way to feasts. Jesus eats and eats in the Gospel of Luke. 
and the rest of the Gospels too. Eating and drinking in Ecclesiastes is a sign of God's good blessing, receiving them from him. And what does God's good Savior do when he comes? He feasts. In fact, you shouldn't fast when he's here with you. And then before he left, what did he do? He left for us this symbol, this symbolic act, eating and drinking. If this were the first century, we would have had a feast before this. Our church would have, uh, we would have met for dinner uh, before we would partake of these uh, elements. We don't eat together very much. The fellowship committee does the best they can to make sure we do, but, but uh, we're coming to just get a taste Eating and drinking is a sign of God's goodness in this broken world. Jesus, who is the good Savior, came, and he came eating and drinking, and he left us this way, this eating and drinking, to remember his great gift to us, the sacrifice of himself for our sins. And when the Bible wants to tell us about that great day when Jesus returns, how wonderful it's going to be when he comes, do you know what John says it's like? He says it's like a marriage supper, a great feast, the best feast of all. Eating and drinking is a sign of the goodness of God that points us forward to the Savior who eats and drinks, who left us a sign of reminding us of his death and resurrection that is eating and drinking, and all in anticipation of that great feast that is to come around his table. Let's spend some time together in the next few months, we who toil under the sun, Let's spend some time together learning how Ecclesiastes helps us to receive the feast that God gives us, even in this very, very broken world. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we come before you this morning and we are thankful to you for this mysterious book, this strange and mysterious book that is hard for us sometimes to read. I pray that you would give me clarity as I uh, prepare and as I study and as I learn so that I can show these dear friends, these sheep that are yours, your, your people, show you from your word what you would have us all to know about following you faithfully. Lord, um, you know the temptations that we all face to believe the lies that Ecclesiastes unmasks. We believe so many things about life in this broken world that just aren't so. So I pray that you would show us the truth. Save us from being those who deny life's hardships. Save us from being people who are just overrun by life's hardship. Strengthen all of us with whatever youth and strength we have to remember you who are our great creator and savior and follow you faithfully in this broken world. Life is but a vapor, but you, Lord Jesus, are our solid hope, our firm foundation. Teach us to love you more as we love the broken things in this world less. We pray these things together in the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, Amen.